Join us for this episode of Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hey everybody, I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode number, can you believe it, number 60. And today, we're doing a deep dive. We're going to talk about water, and we think it's more important than ever. Right, Brian? Oh, definitely. Water, source of life, right? So many waters you can purchase. But what about the birds and the critters in your backyard? What about them, and what do you provide for them? And... Are there different kinds of water scenarios you can provide in different habitats across North America? You know, just something as simple as a little bowl of water to something big where maybe it's a whole ecosystem of water that you might even have fish and plants in there. And how do you balance all of these things? How does that help birds? And how do you manage those mosquitoes that might show up or prevent them from ever being an issue? We're going to talk all about this today with David Mizajewski, returning guest. We're excited to have him, the naturalist from the National Wildlife Federation. So got a lot of inspiration, a lot of fun today. All right, well, let's get going. And you know what? A lot of people listen to our podcast because they're wanting to learn more things about how to attract different birds to their backyards, either with foods or feeders or whatever it might be. Let me tell you, one of the things you can do to really make a change in your backyard, it is water. It will attract a lot of birds that will never come to your feeders. They're not feeder birds in any way, shape or form, but they need water and they'll come to water regardless. So it's a great addition to your backyard. Yeah, the sound of moving water is not just attractive to birds, but think about people. And, oh my goodness, how many apps are out there to play the sound of rain or thunderstorms or the surf crashing or uh, waterfalls? It it is just so peaceful, and it it attracts us emotionally, too. Okay, Brian. (laughs) Our producer, Evan, has come up with a really good question that, I'm not sure I have the answer to. He wants to know what the typical amount of water a given bird drinks in a day. You oh, know? that's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea. That's Evan for you, Mr. <laughs> Curiosity. But, but, but the bottom line is, I don't think there's a standard answer. Matter of fact, there's no way there's a standard answer because every right. single bird is going to have a different requirement for the amount of water, depending on habitat, location, the type of foods mm-hmm. they eat. Uh, you know, wherever yeah. they, you know, whatever, whatever well, they, however yeah. they live their lives, it's going to be how big they are, how small they are. I mean, I don't know. Right. Any, well, any, any words of wisdom? <laughs> only a few. <laughs> Not very many. I mean, hummingbirds get moisture from the nectar they're drinking. That, that's an obvious one. Um, we know morning doves. They, uh, they can suck up because they don't really drink they suck up like they're drinking through a straw which is pretty unique but they can drink their daily intake in like 20 seconds and not drink the rest of the day i just don't know what that daily intake is again i don't know i don't know if like that well actually i remember one study on house finches that that uh yeah it varies depending on the temperature i think i remember something like if it was around 70 degrees they they drank on a daily basis about 20 percent of their weight in water but it, once it got up to 100 degrees, they were up to about 50% of their weight in water. 
So that's that's a pretty interesting little fact, and it certainly the, you know illustrates the need that during hot weather, water is very important. Now, in some areas, though, in the desert southwest, you've got black-throated sparrows. They eat seeds for a living. There's not much free water around. They literally are able to get enough moisture out of seeds, and how they do that, I'm not sure, but apparently they are able to get the vast majority of their, their water needs, uh, daily requirement, from the seeds that they're eating and, and do just fine. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary depending on the bird, the temperature, the habitat that the bird lives in, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think there's any one standard answer to, to Evan's question. But special day today, our returning guest that we've, I think, David, you're our first return visitor to our podcast, speaks well. Obviously, we wanted to have you back, and we hope you'll be back again in the future. But for those of folks that don't remember that episode, which I think was what? Uh, episode 25. 25, that's it. Episode yep. 25. David Mezajewski is the naturalist for the National Wildlife Federation, which I, you know, David, I've been in this business a long time, a lot longer than I'd care to admit <laughs> at this point. Uh, but you know what? National Wildlife Federation has always been the benchmark. They've always been in the lead. You know, I started working in nature centers in 1980. And National Wildlife Federation and the Backyard Habitat Program and everything else that they've done over the years, their publications, their educational materials, it was a benchmark, a cornerstone of a lot of the activities that we did in, in my nature centers back all those years ago. So thrilled to have you here today and, and welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited to be back. I didn't know I was the first repeat uh, you know, guest on the show, so yeah. I'm going to add that to my resume. And, there you um, go. We'll I'm, take I'm, your I'm, part, man. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. And um, as you know, I'm a nature geek, just like you guys, and really um, excited to talk all about birds and water and other wildlife. And as always, what we can all do to make the world a little bit of a better place for our wildlife friends starting right outside our own doors. Yeah. So, David, naturalist for the National Wildlife Federation, what do you do? I mean, what? Uh, that's a great position, obviously. But, you know, what is your day to day activity like and what 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 role do you play for National Wildlife Federation? You know, that's a great question. I, I don't know that everybody, you know, really has a common understanding of what a naturalist actually is. You know, Charles Darwin was a naturalist. Mm -hmm. Jane Goodall is a naturalist. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously I'm not saying I'm as you know good of a naturalist as either of them, but <laughs> a, a naturalist, at least for me, is someone who has a passion, but also knowledge, deep knowledge of the natural world, you know, the wildlife and the ecology and the, the it, like sort of the systems of our planet. But more than just having the knowledge, a naturalist is somebody who, who helps interpret the natural world for everyone else. You know, um, sometimes it can be really confusing when you look out the door and see, you know, wildlife behavior, or you know, you watch TV or you read books or whatever. And um, and a naturalist's job is to help, you know, kind of break that down and and it's just sort of an easy way for people to understand, with the ultimate goal of helping them want to care about nature and get involved in, for example, the work that the National Wildlife Federation is doing to protect wildlife and wild places all across America. You know, most naturalists work, John, as you did at nature centers, that's actually where I got my start or mm -hmm. national parks or places like that, doing this natural history interpretation. Um, so um, I'm here to help 
you know, yeah. on the back end, review stuff and make sure we put out just high quality, scientifically accurate info. But it's all about protecting our, our brand and our credibility. You know, if we can't get yeah. wildlife right at the National Wildlife Federation, <laughs> right, we might right. just pack it up and go home. So, you know, and it's that's exactly the role Brian and I play here for WBU. Exactly the same role. You know, I, I really appreciate your, you know, when you when you talk about inspiring people, you know, and, and, and interpreting nature and, and different things in nature. That's the thing for me is, you know, I, I literally went to college to become an interpretive naturalist and, and have had an entire career. And I think the thing that's really important in these jobs, among many things, we are very observant we're out we are studied in regards to everything from astronomy to geology and everything in between ecosystems resource management and you see things you see the connections and i think that's for me the passion i have is to help other people see those connections and understand that if you mess with something on side a it's going to impact side b uh, so I think making those connections and doing those things and National Wildlife Federation obviously has been doing that for many, many years. Yeah, we've uh, we've been around for a while. We formed back in 1936. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, the whole for folks that aren't familiar with the National Wildlife Federation, our mission is is, is to ensure that wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. And yeah. we human beings are the cause of that rapid change. Yeah. And, um, right. you know, from the very get go. The idea behind the National Wildlife Federation was to to kind of bring disparate groups that all have this common, you know, sort of love of, of wildlife and, and nature together, and 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 through that shared value, to you know, kind of add our voices to each other's and make them more powerful. Let's talk about some of the things people from simple to complicated, if you will, that, that people can do in their own backyards. Yeah. So I, I like that you phrase that simple to more complicated, because this is one of those habitat components. Again, that's a requirement if you want to earn certified wildlife habitat status for your yard or your garden from the National Wildlife Federation. Um, it's one of the components that I think people get intimidated by. It's also the one that most people probably are missing right out of the gates. You know, almost everybody has some plants that are providing food and cover and maybe even places to raise young, um, but not everybody has that that water feature, right? And so the message is, is it doesn't have to be very complicated. You don't have to, you know, bring in a backhoe and dig a deep pond and spend thousands of dollars. <laughs> People sometimes think that when you say you have to have a water feature in your yard, you know, um, it doesn't have to be that. Because right, right. different wildlife use water features in different ways, right? So, you know, yes, if you want to attract great blue herons or ducks to your yard or aquatic turtles or bullfrogs, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe mm -hmm. you're going to need a bigger water garden, a backyard pond scenario. But mm -hmm. guess what? A very simple bird bath will do. And a bird bath is literally just any shallow vessel that'll hold, you know, no more than three inches of water, you know, one to three inches max um, that you can put out and easily, you know, maintain, empty and refill it every couple of days, wipe it out periodically. Um, that's a bird bath. And it could be hanging from a chain hung off of a branch. It could be sitting on a pedestal. It could be attached to the side of your deck or your balcony, or it could just be right on the ground. It doesn't get yeah. more simple. And any dish will do. You know, you can buy right. you know, fantastic bird baths 
decorative ones. Again, Wild Birds Unlimited stores have a bunch of them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you could use really any shallow dish. I, I actually currently am using just ceramic um, flower pot drainage dishes that have like pretty colors on them. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had a couple lying around and I was like, this is what I'm going to use as my bird bath. And I put one on a pedestal and one on the ground and the birds love them, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's pretty so easy. Oh, and that and that's the brilliant part that it could be super inexpensive to super expensive, all sorts of materials. Uh, just at my parents' house a week ago, and my mom went and purchased a couple more ant moats, the little dishes that you hang between your your hanging hook and your hummingbird feeder to put water in to prevent the ants from getting to the nectar. She purchased a few because the chickadees and the titmice and the goldfinches that visit her yard. She said, that's where they prefer to drink in the middle of summer. And why do I have to spend lots of money on a big bird bath when I can buy those little things? I already have some bird baths. So just fun little things that, like you said, it does not have to be complicated, but it is an important component, even if it's a small component. Yeah. That's, that's one of those things I've been meaning to try for a long time, Brian. And then you know, just take a hummingbird feeder and take the top off and fill it up, fill the bowl mm -hmm. up with water and just hang it from a tree or something. And just watch, I'm sure the birds would use it. <laughs> I, I've just never tried that. I'm going to try that. Yeah. And you know what I love about that story is that it's such a brilliant example of just sort of one of the, the ideas behind backyard habitat and garden for mm -hmm. wildlife and certified habitats is this is really about not just helping the wildlife, but giving you a spot where you can like yeah. watch these really cool animals yeah. without having to book a trip to, you know, some far <laughs> off exotic location, right? You can create your own yeah. little safari right outside your window. Right. And, and when you do actually take a minute to enjoy and watch the wildlife, you start to learn things, you know, mm -hmm. that's a little anecdotal observation, right? That now we're all thinking about, we're like, Ooh, you know, like, and oh, if, that's right. Yes. You know, exactly. unless your mom was watching, she might not have figured that out. And, you know, interestingly, same thing with me, you know, I had this, this, this bird bath up on a pedestal, you know, maybe two feet off the ground and the birds used it, but it was just a week ago that I put the one place on the ground and they love it. They mm -hmm. will like mm -hmm. the birds will go to the one that's on the ground mm -hmm. yeah. 20 feet away in, but, but not any real different conditions before they'll go to the one on the pedestal or I have one on my my deck as well um and they use them all but they love that one on the ground i don't know why um you know it's just as exposed and but they yeah well I, you know people always ask how how deep should the water be and one of the one of the things i always love to relate to them is have you ever watched a parking lot after a rain there'll be these shallow little puddles out in the parking lot and watch the birds go and they, you know dip into it and shake and yeah and dip into it again they like actually fairly shallow. If they're truly using it to bathe, they actually like the shallow water much more than anything that's that's you know deep at all. So it doesn't take a lot of water. It doesn't take a lot of water. Well, if you think about it, meet put the put the water to meet the birds where they are and where they're comfortable. And you do get a lot of those birds uh, that prefer they're constantly around the ground and they that's where they're finding their water sources. But you think about those uh, woodland birds. Yeah, those chickadees and the titmice and the nuthatches and goldfinches as well. Just they get little drinks of water out of little crooks and tree trunks. And, and that helps imitate that. It, it's just so much fun. And David, like you said, when you start paying attention and it, you start doing that naturalist concept, 
you're not just seeing a bird, you're not just seeing a critter, you're now watching their behaviors and thinking about why do they do that? Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. and I, I'm glad you, you, you noted, Brian, that that's naturalist activity, right? Because anybody <laughs> can be a naturalist, right? Yeah. You don't yeah. have to go and get a degree, right? We all are naturalists and it starts by just getting outside and observing. Yeah, I, I often refer to backyard birding and bird feeding as kind of the gateway drug <laughs> to, to nature. So what do we, uh, what do we, you know, a lot of people, different types of, you know, from a bird bat to your, your uh, one on the ground, David, and I have a little vase that, that has a little bubbler on the top and it cascades down the side. My hummingbirds, hummingbirds do what they call leaf bathing. They go up against a wet leaf and kind of rub their body against it and get all wet. And that's how they bathe. Well, this, this fountain, because the water's cascading down to a, a reservoir in the bottom, they just go up and rub against the side of the vase, and it's so cool to watch and see them do that. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, what are the downsides? What are, what what are some of the problems people may need to know about to have the best experience they can possibly have in their backyard by offering a water feature? You know, like anything else, there's a little bit of maintenance involved, right? Like you can't just put out one of these water features and then never touch it again. It's just like with with putting out feeders. You know, there is a uh, a commitment and a responsibility on our part to maintain them properly because mm -hmm. they can spread disease and they can be a kind of a negative if you don't you know, do do the maintenance. And the good news is it's pretty easy, right? In terms of a bird bath, um, you know, there's a couple things. One, birds, you know, they, they go to the bathroom or the bird bath, right? So, <laughs> um, and and like, you know, obviously, a reality. <laughs> yeah, any waste in the water that the birds are also drinking, you know, that could be problematic. Yeah. And again, yes, does it happen in nature? Of course. But, you know, again, with, it's up to us if we're going to put out these these sort of, quote, unquote, artificial habitat resources to do the work to maintain them. Again, mm -hmm. Same thing with nesting boxes. And that's as simple as every couple of days going out and, you know, or even daily dumping them, filling them with fresh water. And every few days, um, you know, maybe just wash them out, use a little soap and water rinse them well, give them a scrub with a, you know, like a little scrub brush. Um, if you feel like you really need to disinfect it, you know, you can use one of those mild bleach solutions or white vinegar um, and just, mm -hmm. you know, periodically just really disinfect it. Of course, if you let it sit for a while, algae can grow. And I'm telling you, if you have algae growing in your bird bath, you are definitely not cleaning it up <laughs> because it takes a little while for that to happen. other big, big, big concern that, that people have, um, and I think it's a little bit unwarranted, is mosquitoes. Yeah. Uh, and yes. so mosquitoes, yep. they breed in standing water, while a bird bath is a little standing body of water, right? And so um, I understand, the, you know, why people are cautious about, you know, wanting, not wanting to have standing water and worried that, if, oh, if I put out a, this, this bird bath or this water feature, mosquitoes are going to breed in it. Here's the deal. Mosquitoes take anywhere, you know, on the on the extreme early end, three, but more typically five to seven days to go through their aquatic larval phase. Yeah. And there's all different mosquito species and it varies from species to species. So these are just sort of average numbers. But, um, you know, they, the females lay the eggs in, in standing water, the eggs hatch, they go through this larval phase, and then they emerge as the winged adults, the females of which will seek out a blood meal. Um, the males, by the way, feed on flower nectar exclusively. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not little that uh, like, naturalist tip, right? <laughs> yeah, not that um, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting anybody to form a love of mosquitoes when they find out that they are nectar feeders primarily, the females too, um, and that they actually are pollinators. But I think as a naturalist, it's my duty to share natural scientific facts. And, Absolutely, um, indeed, indeed. But you know, so how do you deal with them at a bird bath? Well, if you dump the water out every couple of days at at you know max. Any mosquito eggs or larvae go away. So your bird bath really is never going to be producing any mosquitoes into the population. I love that you brought up the scrub brush idea too. And I, because I think in maintaining a bird bath, that is such an overlooked, super simple and expensive tool that utilizing that when you dump out the water and it, whether it's every day or once a week, you just give it a little scrub. Any algae that's trying to take hold, it's gone. Um, any, any mosquito eggs that, or a little larva, the little wigglers that kind of, if you ever wonder, do I have mosquitoes in my water? And you see those little wiggler, teeny little strings wiggling around. <laughs> That's a little mosquito larva, but that scrub brush, if it doesn't flow out with the water dump, you swipe it right out. It's such a great, easy, simple little tool to help you maintain things and have that nice, simple life and know you're doing right by the birds. Yeah. And it's really not a lot of work. You know, it's, yeah. it's just not anyone can do it. The other thing I like to use is a little recirculating fountain. I have my regular, you know, I've talked about my bubbler. So that, that water is always moving, always circulating. There's no chance a mosquito is going to be successful in laying an egg, you know, and, and have it survive in that type of moving water. In my regular uh, bird bath, I have a little pump that goes up a little, you know, it looks like little fake rocks stacked on top of each other and just pumps up the water to the top and drops it down the side. So that water is constantly moving and, and bouncing around. And so mosquitoes have a very hard time surviving in, in moving water like that. Plus the sound. I mean, the sound of water splashing is like a flipping magnet to birds. I mean, you, you're going to draw in birds. Oh, yeah. The thing I found that I draw in birds to my yard with the water that would never come to my feeders, which is, you know, a huge payoff for somebody that's, you know, wanting to see different things in their backyard. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the moving water thing too, because it's totally true. It yeah. is like, just like a, like an invitation bell and you're right. Not all birds are going to visit a feeder. But they might visit a you know a bird bath or other water feature that uh, you know is sort of bird conducive and maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about that um, about yeah. other water features that yeah um, and, and and Brian you mentioned sort of like design like what's going to be bird conducive right so right you know, many many folks do have backyard ponds or other kind of water gardens whatever you want to call them and I think you know it's it's maybe not an entry level thing into the world of gardening and backyard habitating, but you know, a lot of folks do have the, these backyard ponds. And so, yeah. And I have a little make... recirculating pond yeah. that I have put in. It's, it's like a little recirculating Creek into yeah. a, a small pond. And like you said, it's, it's not generally your, your entry level water feature, <laughs> right? but it's down low and it provides lots of space and mm-hmm. that, and it's moving water. Right. I love that. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is my recommendation always is if you can, Try to go with the flexible pond liner. And yeah. when you're creating this, this water garden or, or backyard pond, you know, you excavate it and then you, yeah, there's a whole process. I actually talk about it in my book, um, you know, making sure that you layer some, you know, sand or soft soil under there and that things are level and that there's not rocks or anything that could cut the liner 
because the last thing you want is a leak after you do all right. this work. <laughs> but um, when you do, when you go that route versus buying one of the prefabricated plastic pond liners, which are which are great, and I've I've used those before. Um, but the thing that they lack is a shallow end. Right. And when you dig right. your own pond, you can create the topography that you want. And John, it goes back to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Birds do not need deep water. They don't want deep water. Yeah. You know, like an inch of water is plenty for birds to be able to get a drink and take their, you know, bathe their feathers or whatever. And so when you when you dig your own pond and you use the flexible liner, it just gives you an opportunity to kind of really control what that looks like. And that's always a good thing, too, to have a shallow end um, because, you know, animals can get in sometimes of those steep, smooth sided plastic or you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost like swimming pool type. Sometimes you see them with concrete sides and, you know, no, no shallow end whatsoever. It's just a hard edge. And even aquatic animals, believe it or not, can drown, you know, frogs, if they can't access any, any land or any vegetation to get out on and they can't get out the side, they, they can drown, which is mm-hmm. surprising yeah. that that can happen. And so for birds, having that shallow end can make a, kind of just like a little natural bank like they would use in nature, in a pond in nature. So that's that's one tip. And if you yeah. if you do have one of those deep sided plastic, uh, you know, pond kit type things becomes really important. Um, well, this is true in any kind of pond. But remember, we call them water gardens for a reason. You really should have vegetation in them. Because not only does the vegetation help compete with algae for nutrients um, and for sunlight, and so you know having uh, you know wetland plants in your water feature, a pond, um, are, is going to help turn help it from turning into pea soup. Because mm-hmm. that can happen mm-hmm. if you have just an open body of water. Um, again, you can't dump a pond like you can a bird bath, so it'll rapidly get overtaken by algae. So your aquatic vegetation, wetland emergent plants. You know, things like cattails or if you have a bigger pond or um, things like pickerel weed, you know, mm-hmm. wide distribution all across America and cultivate it. So you can go to your garden center and and and, and plant that either in pots or even a, like a shallow water's edge kind of scenario helps keep the pond clean. But going back to the wildlife, it also can serve as ladders in and out of the water or entry and access um, if an animal falls in. Um, in fact, I had this happen to me a few years ago. Um, in my old backyard in Washington, D.C., um, right in the middle of the city, and I had a like a 50-gallon plastic pond that I had sunk into the ground. And um, I had a juvenile um, robin land fall into the pond. And I watched it. It kind of, you know, really couldn't fly very well. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it the only way it was able to get itself out was because I had the vegetation. It was able to hop up on... The, the 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 stalks of this pickerel weed that I had in a pot and it popped itself right out and scurried away and was just fine. If mm-hmm. that wasn't there, it probably would have drowned. Different a different story. You know, and I love that you touch on if you're gonna put something bigger water wise, it's not just the birds, but critters at, like frogs. And this year was the first year I had frogs in my little recirculating creek. Um it, I was so stoked. I was so excited. Uh, but, you know, I used your book as a reference point in making my, my creek. And um, and I definitely, I put in, because I made a little bit deeper pool at the bottom, and I did the shallow 
entry scenario, basically a zero depth entry. So because um, I have lots of squirrels, I know occasionally raccoons will come through the yard, definitely possums, they'll get drinks and I didn't want anyone to fall in and not be able to get out. Well, we have a new dog and you might know where I'm going with this one. Uh, when he is done running and he's hot, he goes to the family pool, <laughs> AKA the bird creek and he lays in the deep end in that zero depth entry scenario and it's hilarious uh, and so even our dogs enjoying it but i think that also takes it to whatever size uh, water feature you have i love that you're talking about managing the water when it's bigger because uh, i don't want to put additives into my water to manage that water because I know there are critters, my own dog, my own critter is drinking out of that water and I want to keep it as fresh and clean as possible. You know, the raccoons are also drawn to the sound of the, the moving water. And I do have a, like a pump going on in there, a fountain mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. trickles, right? And it attracts them. And so um, I, I, I actually, I take it back. They did get in over the winter and they did get the goldfish. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's when I started doing this and I have new goldfish. Now I rebooted the, the water garden, but I have to put the rock on it yeah. with the camera on top. And, and periodically <laughs> they always come and peek and they're touching, they're putting their little fingers in the water. They're very tactile animals, right. but they have not been strong enough yet to, you know, yank the metal grate off the top. And then in the morning I go out and I take the grate off um, when I'm doing my bird bath duties and I feed the goldfish and they're trained. When the grate comes off, they come to the edge. And again, they're pets. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. So, yes, really good point about yeah, that. I, I, They'll get too attached. I think I'm <laughs> kind of going to stick with my little Voss, <laughs> my little bubbler and, and my yeah. little, little bird bath. And I've, I've, I've always wanted to put in a big water feature in my yard, but I, I think maybe I'll just stick with what I've got for right now and, and see what happens. But, and I have enjoyed mine and I yeah, have I, put fish and plants in in the past, but I've made little hide, hiding shelves and then the plants help. And the, the raccoons did not get as aggressively destructive <laughs> as yours did at one point. Um, they've been very tame about it. And and I learned that very quickly to, to have a little hiding shelf area or plants because my little fish that I put in <laughs> disappeared. <laughs> Dis disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like with all things, when you're, when you're doing things to deliberately attract wildlife, you want to be thoughtful about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if you happen to live in a naturally arid area and you put out a giant water garden like this, you know, chances are you're going to attract not just the birds, right. You're going to attract the raccoons and maybe the bears and um, you know, maybe the mountain lions and you know maybe the moose or whatever depending on where you are and of course these are not the kinds of wild animals we want to attract you know deliberately and so you know maybe you just want to think about that and and you know your fail safe is your bird bath right that's not really going to draw in any of these bigger animals right. but if you do live in an area where you might draw in some of these animals mm -hmm. that are not really appropriate to be in your backyard you might want to go low on the water feature you yeah, know if you right. live in the desert um you know, yes, it can be cool to like see these animals show up in your yard, but you just want to you know, be mindful because not only does that create a potentially unsafe scenario for people, it's unsafe for the wildlife too, mm -hmm. because animals mm -hmm. like predators or bigger animals that are routinely 
approaching people and where we live, they usually don't last very long. Right. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, I think we have definitely taken a deep dive into the subject of water and a whole lot of other things. And what a fun time this has been. So I, any, any last comments or words? Just thanks for having me again. I always enjoy coming on here. And, um, you know, I know we've gone really long, longer than normal, but I get very excited, as you can tell. And I'm just, I'm, I'm psyched to have the opportunity to just share my nature geekery with everybody. Absolutely thrilled to have Excellent. you on with us today, David. Thank you. Yeah. Always fun to have naturalists all get together, sip some coffee, and spin some yarns, right? And I hope everyone else really enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Love having you back, David. And everyone else, please yeah, rate and review us and hit that subscribe button. Yeah, and please join us for our next episode when I think we're going to soar into the world of Purple Martins. So until then, Brian and I, as always, are going to continue to let nature be our guide. And we ask that you please Take care, be safe, and keep those feeders clean. Thanks for joining us, everyone. To subscribe to the podcast, for show notes, or to find the Wild Birds Unlimited store near you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. And we really appreciate you telling your friends about Nature Centered. But until next time, we hope you find a moment every day to relax and enjoy the birds.